Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. We exist to respond to the questions you are, aren't comfortable asking in church. And I am stumbling over my words, Aaron McGinnis, but that's okay, right? That's okay. Hey, we're going to have a great conversation today. We have uh, Dr. Richard Middleton here um, to talk about his book, Abraham Silence. And I'm really, I'm fascinated to get into this. And should we, dare we just jump right in? Do you want to give a quick little intro there? Uh, well, Dr. hold on. Before we give him a quick intro, Aaron McGinnis, wonderful co-host. We want to thank our producer, Nathan Yoder. We'll do all that. But no, let's jump in. Go right ahead. Okay. Well, uh, first, Dr. Middleton, where do you work? What is your study? Things like that. Yeah, so I teach at Northeastern Seminary, which is part of Roberts Question University. I started at Roberts um, 21 years ago, and I've taught half my time at Roberts at the college and then half at the seminary. Mm-hmm. And that's where I am right now. And what's your field of study? I started out as a philosopher and shifted into biblical studies with Old Testament as the focus. Okay, wonderful. Well, I'm excited to talk today because uh, we're going to be talking about Abraham, the, the sacrifice of Isaac, the binding. Um, and I, I actually did a little bit of uh, TikTok and YouTube research to kind of uh, couch this. Um, there's someone named Abraham Piper. Are you familiar? Mm-hmm. Um, who's big in the deconstruction movement. And I think he probably asked the question that maybe some of our listeners are asking uh, about this story of Isaac. It's a story that if you grew up in the church, it's a very common one. Um, you know, God asked Isaac to sacrifice his son. He obeyed. What a great thing. Um, God is merciful through the ram. Um, but uh, Abraham Piper, who is someone who has deconstructed his faith, kind of points out that this, to him, this story is crazy. <laughs> it's a, actually a very problematic story because he says either this God that we serve is just messing with us at some times. He says something that he actually doesn't want us to do, or he's a, a really terrible person who's asking you to do something bad. And, and I even looked in the comments and lots of people were resonating with this view. He's, uh, someone said, I actually asked my mom once if God asked her to kill me, would she do that? And I kept pressing and kept pressing. Eventually, she said, yes, I would. And it completely changed the way I viewed her. And then someone else said, "Um, when my first son was born, I started thinking of things differently. This story was instrumental in my deconstruction of faith. Um, It parallels the crucifixion, which also changed uh, my view of it from a story of faith and mercy to the act of a monster. So this story of the binding really can be an incredibly problematic story for people who are asking the hard questions, um, trying to figure out what is this faith, what is true, what is not. And I'm actually very interested to talk about your work in this and how maybe there's a third way or maybe a different way of viewing what actually was happening um, here in Genesis. So, yeah. I think my first question to you, and then that's it. That that was my uh, little soapbox. Um, is how did you first start start get in, getting interested in the the binding, the story of Abraham mm-hmm. and Isaac? Let me give you a little background on my own faith journey, and then contextualize it that way. I grew up in the evangelical church with a, a sense of this secular world is fallen and not as important as some spiritual reality. And I was to attain to that spiritual reality, you know, Bible study, prayer, evangelism, worship, those kind of things were important. I was an art student in high school, and I wanted to express myself in the arts. My church made me feel that that was very important. And I didn't know how I could make a living as an artist anyway. And my pastor suggested I go down the road to the undergraduate theological seminary. So I did a Bachelor of Theology. In my first year, I fell in love with Scripture, and I found my vocation to understand, study, and teach Scripture. 
But we were doing what you call deconstruction back then, and I won't tell you how many decades ago that was. The term was never around. But we were recontextualizing faith because I was doing my studies in the country I grew up in, Jamaica. And you can't just accept Western traditions of theology because they're culturally um, contextualized already, and you have to recontextualize them, reread scripture to think about it. So I began to develop a, a very powerful creation theology that God values this world. When he looked on creation, he didn't say some things were secular, some were sacred. He said it was all very good. And I also believe that when God gave leaders in the church, apostles, pastors, and so on, it was to equip all the saints for the work of ministry. So I was to do the work of ministry in whatever I would do. Now, my church suggested that was really only to do in church, <laughs> but lots of ministries that were church-oriented. But I wanted to work in the world as the image of God. So I was studying creation theology. I was also studying eschatology, the last things how God doesn't take us out of this world to some ethereal realm where we're somehow resurrected bodies in a non-material realm, which never made sense to me anyway. But I heard about a new heaven and a new earth, so I began studying how that new heaven and new earth is the culmination of God's purposes from the beginning. Just as if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, so John saw a new, an old heaven and old earth passing away and a new one coming. It doesn't mean you obliterate one to s replace with the other. It means God is at work to renew the world, to make it right, to fix the world. And I could have a role in that. So I shifted from this very despondent, otherworldly faith to an exhilarating, positive faith, anticipating the coming of the kingdom. But then you live in the real world where they were suffering, where my friend died of cancer at 29, leaving his wife and two young children, where there was a war in Ukraine, where there was terrorism, where there was slavery still in the world. How do you live anticipating the new creation while taking seriously the realities of where we are now? And that ate at me, especially when my life took a left turn. <laughs> um, I was about 30 years old and I fell off the rails basically. I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. Things seemed to fall apart. And I remember coming to the Psalms of Lament and praying them and finding my faith reawakened and realizing the book of Job was about a person who God said to Job's friends, y'all, plural, have not spoken of me what's right as my servant Job has. And boy, Job was protesting to God. And I never knew what to do with Abraham's silence. God said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take please your son, your only one whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And my response would have been, what? Are, are, are you serious? You want me to kill my son? If you want to kill him, you kill him, but don't let me live with the trauma of having killed my own son for the rest of my life with the nightmares and the flashbacks. Are you joking? And I, I started to wonder, would I have done that? Well, first I would have questioned whether that voice was from God. <laughs> and if I thought that God really wanted me to do that, I would protest it, I would intercede, I would pray on his behalf, spare him, Lord. But Abraham didn't pray for his son. That troubled me for half my life. And I've been working on, on the Psalms and Job. And finally, I said, I've got to work on the Abraham story now, the binding of Isaac. Mm -hmm. That's the Jewish name for it. Christians call it the sacrifice or the near sacrifice because he doesn't get sacrificed of Isaac. But the, the word to bind is the word akad. 
and from that you get the noun akedah, which is what Jews call it. Or if you're a, a European Jew or speak Yiddish, you say the akeda. But akeda is how Hebrew Jews would, would speak it today. And that troubled me. So that's where the book comes from. A real sense of existential crisis about how do we relate to God in times of difficulty. And what do we do about problematic texts like this? And there are many other problematic texts in the Bible. But this one really gnawed at me for a long, long time. So, like I said, um, we're talking from your book, Abraham's Silence. I don't even think, we were so excited to interview you, we forgot that the question is, why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? And, you know, I actually want to get technical for our listeners, because I, I think some of this is in the book, and just, Aaron, you did a really good job of kind of summarizing the story. It's fascinating to me with Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Abraham, like, that's a problematic text to some people because Abraham asked God to change his mind. But I think even what you're hinting at is, why doesn't he do that here for his own son? Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess we're, help our listeners unpack a little bit your wrestling because you challenge Abraham. It's, you know, mm -hmm. you just said it yourself. So, you know, what's at play that we might be missing as modern readers of this passage so that we're not in the comment section right. of TikTok Abraham Piper? Yeah, so when we speak about being modern readers, we bring our assumptions. And in this case, we bring over 2,000 years of tradition. Um, there is a saying in Latin, um, let the buyer beware, caveat emptor. Well, I want to say caveat lector, let the reader beware, and caveat auditor, let the listener beware. You're not going to believe me because how can you t put aside 2,000 years of tradition? People like the one you mentioned who tend to put aside the tradition end up, in a sense, leaving the faith or, or throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I want to peel back the layers of tradition to see what this text means in its original context. Almost impossible to do. We don't really know that much about the cultural context of Israel in the time of Abraham because Israel really didn't exist yet. He was the beginning of Israel. What we do know is how the Abraham story fits into the literary context of scripture, the canon. And the canon means the rule, the measure. So how, if we understand the, the, the story of God as it's progressing in scripture, how does the Abraham story fit into that? And even more specifically, how does God asking Abraham to offer up his son fit into Abraham's story itself in Genesis 12 through 25? So those are the kind of questions that I was asking. And when you ask those questions, you can reframe the story to mean something different. And you understand that God's purpose is not what Christians have typically thought. The traditional interpretation that Christians have, and there are nuances that are different in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition. But the basic point is this, God is testing Abraham to see, do you love me more than your son? I promised you a son, the nations would come from him. Are you willing to give up that promise just because you trust me? Some people think that that's what God was testing Job for too. Mm -hmm. That's what the accuser, Hasatan, says. Does he trust God for nothing? No, take away everything. See if he still will praise you. It turns out that's not what the book of Job was about anyway. So both Job and Abraham are not really being tested for that. Now you want to, you want me to go on or do you want to No, no, respond? no, no, keep going. Keep going, keep keep going. okay. So I want to put the Sodom and Gomorrah story, Genesis 18, in its earlier context, which is the Moses story, even though Moses is later, because, yeah, so it's more likely that 
that Israel had the story of the Exodus before they had the story of the ancestors. Like you learn the story of Jesus, what he did for you, before you contextualize that in terms of the broader story of the Bible. Mm -hmm. the, the, your contextualization comes after the core idea. So God delivered Israel from bondage in Exodus. Oh, it actually started back before that. And then um, yeah. tellings of the story start to have the Abraham as a preface to it. So what you're saying, just to yeah, like yeah. back it up, yeah. not back it up, but you're saying that maybe instead of viewing the story of Isaac and Abraham um, as the lens to view Exodus and Moses through, actually reverse that because maybe we can view Abraham and Isaac through the lens right. of the Exodus story. And even if you don't want to follow me that far, let's go to Sodom and Gomorrah because I want to show a parallel between Genesis 18 and Exodus 32 where both Abraham and Moses pray similar prayers to God. Okay, So the way that the, the Exodus story goes is this. Um, God gives the Ten Commandments. The second commandment says, you shall not construct a graven image and worship it as a way to worship the Lord. The first one said, don't worship other gods. The second one said, don't even worship God through a graven image because I'm a jealous God and I bring judgment, but I also show love to those who love me. The people break the second commandment. They build a golden calf because they need some tangible way to connect to God. And Moses has gone up the mountain for 40 days. When he comes down, they're worshiping the golden calf. God says, you know what? I'm going to wipe these people out and start over with you. So I'll be, you'll be a new Abraham. And Moses says, no, I don't accept that. It's me and the people together or no, nothing. Wipe us all out together or forgive these people. And the language that he uses to God is in the King James Version, repent of the great evil that you have planned. Modern translation would say, change your mind about the, 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 the tragedy or the, 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 the difficulty that, that you're going to cause. And the next verse says, and the Lord changed his mind about the evil that he was going to do. Moses, Moses just said, don't do it, God. And God said, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, we're told before God, Moses prayed that God said to Moses, these people, are, they've broken the commandments. Leave me alone that I may get angry enough to destroy them. In other words, I'm not angry enough yet. So he's telling Moses, hint, hint, I'm not yet, I'm not going to destroy them yet. You got a moment, you can do something. And Moses rises to the challenge. He steps into the breach, is the language that later scripture uses. Psalm 106 says, God was determined to destroy them, except Moses, his servant, stepped into the breach and prayed for them and turned away his wrath. And the, the notion that human prayer can change God's, not character, but what he will do next, his operational actions, is very common in the Old Testament. So common that one Old Testament scholar, who's a very orthodox scholar, said that when Samuel said to Saul, the Lord is not a human being, that he'd ever change his mind. He said, now that's strange that he would say that because everywhere else in the Bible, God constantly changes his mind <laughs> in relation to prayer. <laughs> but that's a different question. Now, you want to say something? Well, I, I'm just fascinated. So, you know, growing up in church, um, even this idea of Moses, uh, almost the righteous intercessor, interceding, <laughs> having God, you know, turn from what he was going to do. Um, I feel like as a normal Christian, maybe even a younger, you know, I'm in my 20s here. It's like, oh, yeah, that sounds so good. In fact, that definitely points forward to Jesus, who also is the righteous intercessor, exactly. who intercedes the, the wrath of God, you know, and, you know, for this, he is the ram often yeah, is said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so interesting to me that it's so easy for me to accept. Yes, this thing that Moses, Moses did was so good. And even when Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, 
That was a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing that should be praised. I should emulate that. And also, when Abraham doesn't intercede, that is also a beautiful, wonderful uh-huh. thing that I should emulate. And in many ways, I, I see the truth in that. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, this thing that God is asking Abraham to do looks like it'd be leading him in, into death. But by obeying God and actually walking forward and trusting God, Mm -hmm. it leads to life. Um, A very easy way to see that. But I think I'm just noting the the two contradictory of uh, Moses intercedes, it's great. Abraham doesn't intercede, it's also great. How do you think we've gotten there? Well, it's very traditional in Jewish scholarship to say that Genesis 18 and 22 are two different situations that require different kinds of responses. Um, let me say a little more about Genesis 18 first. I, the reason I went to the Moses story is because you have a very similar introduction. Clearly in Exodus 32, God is giving Moses an opening to pray. He's almost inviting Moses to step into the breach. In Genesis 18, God does the same thing with Abraham. He says, shall I tell my servant Abraham what I'm about to do, that the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached me? Yes, I shall, because I have chosen him to teach his children and his household after him the way of the Lord, righteousness and justice. So because Abraham needs to instruct the later generations in the character of God, he needs a lesson in the character of God. Moses learned the character of God being merciful, so much so that when the people refused to enter the land because of the spies who said there were giants in the land, God wanted to destroy them again, and Moses Mm. said, Remember your mercy like you showed at the golden calf? Do it again. And God said, okay. So this becomes a characteristic of God, compassion. But Abraham is a person who has no prior knowledge of this God. He's been called out of Mesopotamia into the land, and he has a few relationships with God, a few dialogues going on. God wants to teach him. So God says, I'm going to tell him something. You know, the cry of Sodom has come to me. I'm going to go down to investigate, see if it's worthy of judgment. And Abraham says, Lord, you can't destroy them if there are 50 innocent. The word said it can mean righteous or innocent. Probably in this case, just innocent. That is relatively righteous, not as bad as the rest of them are. And and God says, yeah, okay, I won't. And he says, well, you know, if there are 45 innocent, you couldn't destroy. You're right, I won't. If if there are 40 innocent, I won't destroy them for that. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm just dust and ashes. Who am I to ever, you know, don't get angry. But God's not got angry, right? But he thinks God will get angry. And he says, suppose that he drops the price now by, by 10. Let's, suppose we're 30 innocent. God says, I won't destroy it. How about 20? God says, that's fine. Suppose there were 10 innocent. That's my last offer, says Abraham. Abraham stops at 10. 10. God says, I won't destroy the city for the sake of 10 innocent. Now, why couldn't Abraham have said, would you save the city for the sake of Lot and his family? That's really what was on his mind, because his nephew was living there, but they were less than 10. The maximum you could get was eight if you counted the, um, the betrothed husbands, but they, they were skeptical. They didn't want to go in the end. But So Abraham, God leaves Abraham, and God sends angels to rescue Lot anyway, something Abraham never even thought to ask for. So God is more compassionate than Abraham imagined. People call this Abraham bargaining with God, but it's not bargaining. Bargaining would be, would you save them for 10 righteous? No, for 50. How about for 20? No, for 30. How about 25? Yeah, let's do that. Bargaining you meet in the middle. This is Abraham asking and God saying, yes, 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 yes. Why didn't you go further? 
Abraham, um, God tells Jeremiah in chapter 5 of Jeremiah, verse 1, that he would save Jerusalem if there was one righteous person. So Jeremiah seeks in the streets and can't find one, and that's why Jerusalem has to be judged. God might save the city for one righteous? Well, it's not Jerusalem, it's Sodom, but they're just as evil because we're being told that Jerusalem has become like Sodom. That's a theme in the prophetic literature. So if Abraham hadn't learned the mercy of God, God said, all right, how are we going to teach him? I could always just tell him I'm merciful, but that doesn't mean anything. Let him learn it in a performative action. Okay, it's not your nephew that's going to die. It's going to be your son. And it's going to be your only son. Now, we had another son, Ishmael, but he was sent away already. So this is the only son left, Isaac. By the way, we can get into this later. Abraham has no love for Isaac. He's alienated from him. It's only Ishmael he loves. There's a lot of evidence in the Abraham story for that. So when he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, means, let me see if you love him. Maybe, maybe if you interceded for him, you could get close to the boy because right now you don't care for this boy. It's really Ishmael who's on your heart. So God says, it's, it's going to be your son, not your nephew, and I'm not going to destroy the city he's living in. You're going to kill him yourself. Let me see if that will cause you to ask for him to be spared as you were almost asking for Sodom to be spared. You never quite got there. And Abraham, I believe, is like the, one, one of the um, servants in the parable of the talents. My master was a hard master, he said. And I, I can't really ask him for much. I just got to grit my teeth and go through it. So Abraham in silence goes to offer his son. Now, I'm not deconstructing that text the way that many are because I'm not throwing out the core message. It is better that Abraham obeyed than said to God, screw you and walk off. Much better. But there is something better than blind obedience to a word from heaven. And that is to trust the character of God as being so merciful that you say, Lord, I know that this is not what you really want to do. Save this boy. Because aren't you a God of love and compassion? I'm beginning to see that. Or if Abraham hadn't come to that conclusion, he might take the risk of saying, Lord, save that boy. And by learning of God's compassion, because God saves Isaac, he would have grown in his understanding of God, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. And the, the fallout of the story, as every commentator has pointed out, is Abraham tells the servants, we will go up the mountain and worship, and we will come back to you. But the end of the story says, and Abraham returned to his servants. And the Jewish tradition has always asked, so what happened to Isaac? One Midrash commentary on the text says um, that this, this is based on how people read the primeval history, that he went to study Torah with Seth <laughs> uh. <laughs> to learn about the Torah. Another one said he was taken to the Garden of Eden to heal of his wounds, whether that's Trauma, trauma wounds or physical wounds, we don't know. But they knew he didn't come down the mountain. And Abraham returned to the servants, and they, Abraham and the servants, traveled to Beersheba, where Isaac never lived in Beersheba. He lived in um, further down in the Negev. And they, they never saw each other the rest of their lives. You know, I actually want to kind of go there a little bit more because we look at Abraham as a father of faith. I, I think many of our listeners know that Muslims look at Abraham as his father of faith. And the funny thing about fathers of faith or patriarchs is they're like wildly imperfect. Yes. And so, you know, 
let's go to the story of Abraham asks his servant to get Isaac a wife. Okay. And and I, I just think that this plays out because I don't think people know it's a surprise to them that, hey, we're gonna we're talking about Abraham and he never talks to his son again. Yeah. And then later so yeah, just yeah, open so, that up. So th- um, there's a famous Jewish scholar named John Levinson at Harvard who has objected to my reading saying that, well, Abraham never talks to Isaac anywhere. Anyway, <laughs> and, and, and that's not the point. The point is they're not living in the same geographical place. Yeah. So they can't connect. So, you know, um, Abraham wants to, f- to do good for his son because he realizes the son has been traumatized. So he sends a servant up to Aram, which is Syria, to Laban, who's a relative, and to get a wife for for his son, but he doesn't go himself. And the the servant brings back um, the wife, but Abraham is not part of the story. And so he never sees him. And we're told later on that God blesses Isaac. Now a father is supposed to bless a son. Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau and Esau stealing the blessing and and Isaac is totally distraught that he can't give the blessing to his son properly because he's been messed up. Why is he so distraught? because he never got the blessing from his own father. God had to bless him in the absence of his father. You know, so when you read the story as a human story about actual people and put yourself in and say, if God asked me to sacrifice my child, would I? And I went and told my son, you know, from early on, if God asked me, I would say no and I would intercede on your behalf. And I gave this talk, my first, one of the first times I ever gave a talk on this story um, at a Christian college in Canada in 2016 and I had a pastor come to me after and said I'm going home putting my son on my knee and telling him you know I will never sacrifice you if God asks me (laughs) and I said good good now I'm not asking you to disobey God hear me very clearly I'm asking you to be faithful to the character of the God we know and say Lord this is not right as the psalmists say in one third of the Psalms, as Job says, it is faithful to protest to God and say, Lord, don't do what you said you were going to do. Don't do what you seem to be doing. It is faithful to pray, to open a prayer with, Lord, we come to praise you because you are the creator and redeemer and we, we know you are exalted. It is also faithful to open a prayer the way the psalmist did in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Mm-hmm. That is also a faithful prayer, because guess who prayed that on the cross? Jesus. Mm. That opens up. For me, I'm always wondering, how did we get to a place where in America, I'm just thinking of my cultural context, Western, where it's so natural to use the Bible as this is the right answer, do this, like God said it, do it. God said it, do it. And it's so unnatural to be like, God, this doesn't seem like it's your character. I'm actually going to wrestle with you over this. Where when we see in the scriptures, God actually does want us to wrestle with him. And he actually invites us. He's like, I want you to be in relationship with me. I'd much rather we be talking over things and, and wrestling and, and uh, hearing your songs of lament and hearing them come up to me. I'd much rather that than you just reading words on a page and just doing them in a sense, although obedience is very pleasing to God. So how is this a, is this an America thing? No, is this it is a Western tradition and it goes back to the early church fathers. Although there have been do- minor streams different. Um, you go back St. Augustine, you go to the Reformation, Luther and Calvin and so on. And what you have is an interesting thing where the only dissonance that is allowed 
is dissonance about our sin. It's not dissonance about our circumstances. We're supposed to accept our circumstances, but we bring our sin to God and, and plead for forgiveness, plead for a change in a relationship. But somehow, we're not really empowered to ask about the change of circumstances. And that's because I think we have spiritualized the Bible in a bad way. So, you know, when, when I teach the Exodus, I make it very clear. And, and I, put, I make this, there's a chapter on the Exodus in my book on New Heaven and New Earth. And I make this point very clear. The Exodus is a historical act of God breaking the bonds of an actual empire. It is a socio-political model of deliverance. Don't spiritualize it to make it just internal. Note the word just. We need an exodus from sin, yes. The resurrection is an exodus from death and mortality, but we also need an exodus from oppression. And so if I can quote you, Bob Marley, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you gotta look within. We're leaving Babylon for our father's land. That's an internal exodus but he would never separate that from the external change of circumstances. We need things to be better. We need to act to make things better. So when the Pharaoh was telling the, the, the Hebrew midwives to you know, kill the children as they were being born and then later on throw them into the river, and they said, no, we're not gonna do that. Uh, these Hebrew women, they're so vigorous, they just give birth, we can't kill them. They're, they're alive and kicking so quickly. And then they resist Pharaoh. They are acting in history. If they didn't do that, Moses would not have been born. Moses would not have been there to deliver Israel. God didn't just deliver Israel magically. He used human agents. He caused people to act in the real world to make a real difference. Mm -hmm. Imagine the people in Ukraine sitting in their, you know, in their churches and just praying, Lord, please stop this war without doing anything and fighting back. <laughs> it wouldn't make any difference because God refuses to act when we can act. I'm not saying that we are the only hands and feet God has. God will act sometimes when we are not able to, and God can do miraculous things. But my friends in the Pentecostal tradition have always pointed out, if you have a sense of history, you know that miracles and healing was very common before the rise of modern medicine among Pentecostals. And they say, don't use that as an excuse not to go to the doctors today. The miracle now comes through human hands, and God has ordained that. So it's not either miraculous healing or people doing things. It's both together. Mm. So there's definitely a lot to think about. I, I want to come back to our bait because this very specific question about Abraham sacrificing Isaac is dealing with a whole bigger issue, which is the way that we read the Bible. And hopefully our listeners are watching or listening to this and they're super encouraged, maybe even questioning in a healthy way. So I guess my question to you is, I want to believe in Christianity. I want to believe that God is good, but I read these stories and now you're asking me, do I, I need to interpret the last 2000 years <laughs> if they're wrong. And then I need to also maybe put off my, how can I practically engage the Bible in a way that I'm not Dr. Richard Middleton? Mm -hmm. I'm not, I, I don't feel kind of compelled to, I mean, go to Northeastern, that's probably a good thing. But <laughs> um, how do we do that as kind of everyday people? Yeah. You know, so we, it, it is hard to say. It, it takes a certain kind of boldness. I wouldn't say arrogance, but boldness that Moses had and Abraham had in certain places to say, 
you know, 2,000 years of interpretation are wrong on this point, but you have to have very good reasons for it. The, the, the reformers said 1,500 years of Catholic interpretation was wrong. Now, they're not even all right in everything they said, I don't think. <laughs> um, so you had constant revivals and reformations, and I'm in the Wesleyan tradition, which is a particular version of Protestantism. We need to wrestle with Scripture. So Jacob at the Jabbok, wrestling, is a model for me. And he comes out injured. He's got a muscle that's pulled, and he's limps for the rest of his life. And Jesus, who wrestled with sin, the Lord of the dance, they thought he was going to be dead, but he rose up again. And now he dances in resurrection. He still has the scars and the wounds, even in resurrection state. So you, you can be wounded in the wrestling. It's such a huge topic. How do I even start? Let me use a metaphor. There is a, a really helpful book that's a couple of years old now, maybe three years old, called The Old Testament is Dying by Brent Strawn, teaches at Duke. If you imagine the Old Testament like a language, a language that we have forgotten how to speak well, and by extension, the New Testament is uses the Old Testament, draws on it, and is the logical conclusion of it. So if you don't understand the Old Testament well, you're going to miss the New Testament too. Mm-hmm. And he, in the book he studies just how much people are preaching from the Old Testament, how much of the Old Testament is found in our hymns and our songs. Very little, it turns out. Certain texts, but much of it is not. And he says, imagine that the, the way we in the church, as well as the, the secular atheists, we've, what we've come to is a kind of a pigeon Old Testament. You know, the, instead of saying, I, I'm so glad I can be here in the Why God Why podcast, I say, me glad me here. <laughs> you know, you, you simplify the language. And the difficult parts of the Old Testament is like irregular verbs. <laughs> you got to know the language inside out to know when to say uh, go, when to say went, because <laughs> that's irregular, right? You don't say goad, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So it's complicated. We need to be so immersed in the text of Scripture, and the Old Testament is really the, the, the grammar of it, so that we can understand the irregular parts like these problematic texts and put them in context. But someone who comes from the outside and just overhears the language and doesn't know to speak much of it, they'll just say, that makes no sense. That's just ludicrous language. And they will toss it out. And they will try to construct a rational language. But languages are not rational. They're complicated. They're fractal. They're complex. So we need, it'll sound simplistic, we need to get back to the Bible people. We need to learn scripture, be deeply immersed in scripture. We need to get back to expository preaching. We need to dig into and lean into difficult texts, knowing that there's a blessing somewhere hiding there for us if we struggle with it enough. And we also need to get rid of the modern American idea that we're always gonna get a quick answer to anything. I struggled with the Abraham uh, Genesis 22 text for over 30 years before I came to my conclusions. Mm-hmm. But I didn't give up. I kept on struggling. And it didn't mean that I stopped trusting the rest of Scripture. Having one or two texts, or having 10 or 20, that I didn't know what they meant because they're so weird, did not mean I gave up on the God who I have come to know in Jesus Christ, who is revealed to me not just 
in Jesus separate from Scripture, but as the culmination and tell us of the Scriptures, who is already embedded in the text. Because I love the Scripture, because I study it and I meditate upon it, I'm free to deal with difficult texts and not be overwhelmed. That's not a full answer, but that's my how I'd start. Mm. Yeah, I, I do think like, even me growing up in the church, in a free Methodist church even, um, which is the background of Roberts and Northeastern, uh, feeling very Old Testament illiterate, <laughs> having no idea what to do with many, many, many of the stories. You know, you go, you know, for the young younger people, we go on TikTok, go on YouTube, and they're like, did you know this was in the Bible? And you're totally blindsided by, well, what does it mean when they, they threw this guy in the bones of Elijah and he came to life? That makes no sense. Um, and I feel partly because... I, just do not know, you know, have a, a first grade or kindergarten level knowledge of the language of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, yeah, we need to keep getting better. You'd be um, excited about this. Well, in our student ministry, we have Kelsey Clark is teaching an Old Testament essentials class right now, Excellent. and they're they're getting a lot of good stuff um, from that. So yeah, if, if say you're a listener right now and you're like, okay, what does this mean? Do I need to just open up my Bible to the Old Testament and start reading? Do I need to just start doing prayers of lament and um, you know asking God to change my circumstance? Should I be looking for classes? What would you say? Is a, a do I just need to help that hope that my church kind of gets the message and that the preacher mm -hmm. starts doing expository commentaries on the Old Testament? Like where, uh, what are some practical steps that I can actually start digging yeah. in and start to learn the language? So in my teaching, I don't think you ever took a course with me, right? I yeah. never did. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I I never tried to be comprehensive and teach everything. I try to take certain key moments of the Old Testament that that give an angle or a lens that when you get that clear, you can go to the rest of it and it starts to make more sense. So my teaching was always not about content, it was about perspective. I would teach perspective. So if you look at all the books I've written over time, they're all aspects of this, giving an angle, giving a sense of what a Christian worldview is. My first book, Transforming Vision, Shaping a Christian Worldview, and then Christian Worldview in a Postmodern Age, and then Genesis 1, and the image of God, and then eschatology, and then now the suffering. These are all angles on different aspects of the Christian faith. I suggest if you can study really important books or go to um, YouTube videos that, that deal with certain issues, it begins to give you a lens through which you can then go and do an overview or a survey. Because an overview or a survey by itself can be just abstract and not very helpful. Um, I actually found in my own experience that after I had taken lots of different Old Testament courses, I went back and took the intro Old Testament course again. It made much more sense, <laughs> much more sense. I did the same thing with the History of Theology course. After I did all the, all, all the theological study, came back, did the intro to theology. That's what it was about. Because the overview just overwhelms you with information. You need an angle. So I recommend for among different places you can go, go on YouTube to Disciple Dojo. Mm. He's a martial arts expert. He's also got an MDiv, and he knows his Hebrew and Greek. And he will interview biblical scholars, and he helps you address all kinds of biblical texts um, very helpfully. It's not superficial, though. He'll, he'll push you. What, that, that was Disciple Dojo. Disciple Dojo. It's, okay, I name, need to add name that is, to my list. <laughs> his name is J.M. James Michael, J.M. Smith. He goes by J.M. Good so, person. So Smart person. So something I, I kind of want to come back to also the reason we have this podcast is there's a perception out there that pastors 
in churches, uh, I think professors have done a way better job of this, but that we're scared of these conversations. And mm -hmm. I, I would, I just, I want to tell all of our listeners now, I'll take the person that's asking this question any day of the week than the person that's coming in with, this is my article that reflects what I believe. Like, I'll take this question. Or that I, solves I, the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want this question to wrestle with. And so one of the things I, I kind of want to transition from there is something that's kind of relatively kind of reincarnated, if I'm allowed to use that word, <laughs> is, and you've kind of mentioned this, is seeing Jesus in the text. So, you know, I've read a number of children's books to my daughter. I'm probably going to go home to my daughter and let her know I'm going to protest um, <laughs> this. But, you know, we we want to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And I, I think that there's some helpful things that it's doing and maybe some potentially unhelpful things. Because you had mentioned, I think that people would say, Jesus is the better Isaac being sacrificed. Um, Jesus is the better intercessor. How do you kind of wrestle with that yeah. to help us kind of understand? It's probably pointing to Jesus, but is it pointing to Jesus in the helpful ways yeah. to move forward? So I'll just say, uh, I'll, I'll talk about how what I mean by seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, because I don't mean what most people think. There is an expression used by a New Testament scholar called reading backwards. Mm -hmm. And what he means by that is better than what it sounds like. Reading backwards sounds like, and I'll quote one of my students, finding Jesus under every rock and tree in the Old Testament. <laughs> that was a phrase that's always stuck with me. Um, I'm not reading backwards, I'm reading forwards. So I think the ram anticipates Jesus because the ram becomes a substitutionary sacrifice. I do not think that in most cases, any of the texts intentionally point forward. Because hmm. I've studied a lot of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, and at some point I'm going to be writing a book on how Matthew in chapters 1 and 2, the infants in the stories of Jesus, quotes the Old Testament, and how does he use it to apply it to Jesus. He says this text has been fulfilled, filled to the full. In none of those texts is it a prediction of Jesus. He is using his God-ordained insight to say, in a similar circumstance in the Old Testament, we now have a parallel circumstance here that we can view as a fulfillment. So the same way, Jesus becomes the sacrifice for us. That's similar to the ram. But that's, I don't know if that's central to any New Testament writer's interpretation. In fact, when the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as a sacrifice, most biblical scholars, especially the Old Testament ones, will point out he's not talking about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He's talking about the Passover particularly. Mm. He's the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, as John puts it, that takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial system never assumed that any of the sacrifices substituted for sin, not one. They didn't do that. If you confessed your sin, and you receive forgiveness, then you could bring a sacrifice as a symbol of thanksgiving or of cleansing or something like that, or fellowship with God. And then a burnt offering was just you burn it all up because you don't eat any of it, and the priest doesn't eat any. It's just a symbol of pure dedication to God. But none of them forgive you of your sin. And when Psalm 51, and there's other texts in the Old Testament, say, you know, a sacrifice you don't want, but a broken and a contrite heart, that's what you want. 
That's not contradicting the sacrificial system. That is a theology of the sacrificial system. Without the broken and contrite heart, the sacrifices mean nothing. Because you are not forgiven because of those sacrifices. So I'm getting off a tangent a little bit, but this to look for how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament is not first learning Jesus, and I'm going to contradict what many theologians and New Testament scholars are saying, because I'm an Old Testament scholar. You don't first learn Jesus, then find him back in the Old Testament. You first learn the Old Testament, then you start reading the New and say, oh my God, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. It's all this stuff that's coming to fulfillment in him. So this this was one of my questions too that I wanted to ask you, but I think we kind of got the answer. And it's the question of, Say, say you thought Abraham should have interceded. Did you do you think that it still had to happen this way in order to set up no, the coming of Jesus? No. Um, so here's a little bit of history of interpretation after the New Testament was written. There are a few allusions to language from the Akedah in the New Testament. For example, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know that kind of stuff. You could say that's an allusion. But that's not making a claim about a parallel or anything like that. There are some other allusions too. And I have an article I'm going to be writing. It looks at every single allusion, and people have studied this. I posted on Facebook one time recently, last week, in response to someone talking about the Akedah, that God really would have preferred Abraham to protest. And I got a lot of pushback by people who just reaffirmed the old interpretation. They didn't give an argument. They reaffirmed it. One person affirmed an interpretation that is not a classically Christian interpretation. It's a Jewish interpretation, but you didn't know that, right? <laughs> and it's that Isaac is a symbol of Jesus because Isaac willfully went to be sacrificed. Jewish tradition, and there are many midrashim, that is these kind of speculative commentaries on the text, um, that say that when Abraham raised the knife, Isaac said, Father, bind me. Because if I move, the sacrifice will be blemished. It has to be an unblemished sacrifice. So, and they say, well, they speculate how old he was. And some rabbinic tradition says he could have been 34. Some say he could have been a teenager or whatever. So he would have resisted. So he wanted the sacrifice. That's a Jewish tradition. That tradition arose in response to Christ and his sacrifice, saying, we got one too. You're not the only one who has a sacrifice, a willing sacrifice. We got one too. And that tradition arose as a alternative to Christian tradition. Then some Christians now take that <laughs> and say, see, Jesus and Isaac, he, they're willing sacrifice. Isaac was not a willing sacrifice. We don't know how old he was. He was. The text doesn't tell us. So I don't think the parallel is there. But, the, there, but by the time you get to second and third centuries AD, you start to get Christians seeing things. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice, so Jesus carried the wood for the cross. You get that in like second or third century, things like that. That that parallel is not found in the New Testament itself. Mm. I've I've one more thing I wanted to get to, and it, and it's and it's this. Um, well, first of all, I think there's probably a lot of questions that even listeners are having right now of like, okay, I heard something about uh, Abraham not loving Isaac. Uh, I'm gonna have to read up on that. So I would encourage you to read up on that in all the questions you may be. What are the, about the New Testament verses and the Hall of Faith and Abraham? And it doesn't talk about the sacrifice. Definitely go and check those out. My question is this: say say someone's on this journey. 
and and they're thinking, oh man, but the traditional uh, view that we the the that church history has put forward of this idea of trusting God no matter what is so beautiful because He's going to lead us into life. And and now I'm hearing too, which I'm hearing too, is that this also another beautiful view of. Wow, God uh, loves us so much that He wants to co-rule with us, and He wants us to be in communion and relationship with Him, and we have to be willing to enter in and actually have dialogue with God, which is also beautiful. And then I'm also thinking about this new movie coming out. I think His Only Son, or only yeah, something yeah. like that, where we're almost absolutely going to see. I'm almost that. afraid to go watch it. I, <laughs> this is the thing, though, because because we're going to go into the theaters or stream it or whatever and see the, the depiction of, wow, this beautiful image of God, of Abraham being obedient and yeah. um, and these just submission to God at its highest form and how that points to Jesus. And we're going to be weeping in our seats. Yeah. And it's this beautiful truth that's going to be going over us. But <laughs> I almost say, what do you do now if you have yeah. now this alternate perspective going into popular media that's yeah. going to probably push people towards Christ, but maybe well, with a yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you process yeah. that? That's a good question. That's a good question. You know, the, the, the story of the Akedah has a certain ambiguity to it. I can see how the traditional reading could be read, um, but it, that re requires putting it in a different context from the literary context of Ab Abraham's story itself. And what the angel says after the sacrifice or near sacrifice can be taken in two different ways. I understand that. I give a, an argument for why it should be taken one way rather than another. But when, anytime you have a, a movie version, you have interpretation because there are so many gaps in the story that you have to fill in the gaps. So you think of The Chosen, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it's the same star, right? The, the Chosen fills in all kind of gaps, mostly in good ways. I like them. A few, I wonder about, but the, you have to fill in the gaps. So I bet you this story is going to fill in the gaps in that direction. So it's not, it's gonna be an interpretation of the story. If it leads people to Christ, I'm glad. I mean, I know people who were led to Christ by the passion of the Christ, and I thought it was a very unrealistic understanding of the human Jesus. Only Superman could have gone through that torture and still be standing. Actually, a human being would have been dead before. So it was over the top, you know, but it led people to Christ. Good, that's good. Paul says, even those who preach the gospel are the false motives, if it leads people to Christ, great. Let them do that. I'm not saying they're false motives here, but maybe not the optimal interpretation. I'm not going to decry that, but I will make my case for an alternative reading mm -hmm. because I'm interested not just in the question of that pure obedience is a good thing, which I think it is, but the question is what's the consequence of your obedience? There is a cartoon. I, I, I found a lot of really good cartoons on the internet of the Akedah. I found hundreds I couldn't use them all. I have one in the book that I used. But there's one of them when Abraham is standing over his son, looking up to heaven and saying, must I always choose between work and family? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so I, that, that's good. I, so, you know, it's funny, I, I, as you're talking, and I, we, we want to get to, you're going to read actually a protest lament prayer, but, you know, there's a scene in the West Wing that I keep thinking about where um, Sam Seaborn is, he's defending a policy that he's totally against. Hmm. And the people around him are like, why are you doing that? Like, and they're so upset with him. And at the end of the show, he says, well, I defended that to prove that I know, like, that I know it inside, that I know this issue inside and out okay. to land at a rate. 
and there's a part of me that as I'm listening to you, like it's almost as if my wife as a mental health therapist, we've put into God this authoritarian and we talk about we talk a good relationship game, but there there is back and forth and we're not recognizing that. And there there is a, an ability to even read the Bible and see multiple sides to it. It, it just seems like we lack that dare I say creativity in reading mm-hmm. the Bible for ourselves. I don't know. Does yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that what happens when you pray lament or protest prayers or com- complaint prayers, whatever you want to call them, what happens is you, l- this is my experience. I'm, I'm generalizing to get a sense. My goodness, the creator of the universe is willing to hear little old me and take me seriously. That, grows your vision of who God is, but it also exalts yourself that I have status in God's sight. I have dignity. God takes me seriously. And that empowers me now to treat other people well because imago Dei, image of God, means that I also imitate the kind of God I think I serve. If God is a harsh taskmaster, I'm going to be that to other people. If God is a compassionate God who hears my cries, I will listen to the cries of others too. And I was just talking to you before this about me. I always want to answer every single email question I get from everybody. I can't always do it. And sometimes I'm not sure they're always insincere in what they, they say, but I want to do that. I want to take them seriously, you know. So I think that you become a better person out of lament prayer. And it affects those around you. So you said you don't want you want to go home and put your daughter on your knee and say, I'm not going to you know, destroy you if God says so. When Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, is making a covenant with Laban, he swears by the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. What did he learn about God from his father? God is to be feared. Now, there are two different verbs for fear or nouns for fear in Hebrew, and they're interchangeable. And the point is, the word itself, fear, can have a negative or positive connotation. It depends whether you're running scared or you're in awe. But the one word doesn't tell you which one. But when he said the fear of Isaac, I know which one he meant. (laughs) Because Isaac was a broken man from then on. He was an insignificant figure. We have the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we have the Abraham story, the Jacob story, and the Joseph story. Where's the Isaac story? He doesn't have a narrative of his own because he has no agency. He's a fractured person. He's a broken person. Do we want that kind of breakup? And then where is Sarah? You know, people always ask, where was Sarah when Abraham did this? If he went to Sarah and said, oh, um, I'm heading out with Isaac. Where are you going? I'm going to go sacrifice him on mountains. She might have objected, you know. But it turns out that perhaps before, but certainly after, she was living in Hebron and he was living in Beersheba. When she dies in Hebron, we're told that Abraham went to, be, to Hebron to bury her. Some translations change the verb as if it was he was already there, but it actually says he journeyed there. He wasn't living in the same place. They were fractured, alienated. He was living in Beersheba. Guess who else lived in Beersheba? Hagar. Hmm. Okay. When God want, told him to, that, um, I'm going to give you another child, and he will be the one through the covenant will come, Abraham said, please don't forget about Ishmael too, and God says, no, I'll bless him too, but the the line will go through Isaac. When 
he had to send Ishmael away. We're told Abraham was greatly distressed about the, what he was doing. He shows no distress about Isaac. When Isaac and Ishmael are playing together, and it's interesting, the verb for play is the same root of the word Isaac. So Ishmael was Isaacing with Isaac. If you know Hebrew, that's how it comes across. Sarah sees, and Sarah says, send the boy away. Because he's going to take over Isaac's position because his father favors him. And he's an older child. He's going to, he, Isaac, Isaac is going to be marginalized. So that's why she wants him sent away. She knows Abraham doesn't care for Isaac. But God, I think, wants Abraham to understand both his compassion and to get closer to Isaac. If you pray for someone, intercede for them. I can testify about that over the last 10, 20 years, I've done a lot of intercession for my wife. It has brought us very close together. When you pray on behalf of someone, you're on their side. <laughs> you put your arm around them. And I could imagine that if Abraham had prayed for his son, they might have had a bond after that, but they didn't. Whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, one one thing to just kind of wrap that up, because I, I think it's important. What you just said there about Ishmael and Isaac just follows all the patterns of God choosing the younger son and having favor with the older son. So I just, we go there. So why don't we do this? Uh, I'd love for you to read uh, that protest prayer. Um, you know, I, I, this is a great place, kind of. We might engage more. We'll see what happens yeah. after the prayer. But, yeah, go ahead. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, his faithful servant, answered, Here I am. Take your son, said the Lord, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And Abraham was dumbfounded. Was this God speaking? The God he had come to know? Abraham knew there were many gods, as many as the peoples of all the lands he traveled through, from Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia to Haran in Aram, in the, to the towns and the cities of Canaan. And many of them required child sacrifice as a sign of devotion. But could his God be asking this too? He thought he'd been coming to know the character of the one called El Shaddai, the one who was different from the gods of the nations. Could God really mean for him to kill his own son? Why? What would it prove? How could this be God's will? Abraham was shell-shocked and silent for a time. But then he plucked up his courage. And with the chutzpah that would come to be recognized as emblematic of the later people descended from him, Abraham spoke up. At first his voice was quavering. Ah, Lord God, he said, are you really asking me to kill this young innocent lad? Do you really want me to live with the everlasting memory of his blood on my hands? Do you want to subject me to a lifetime of nightmares and flashbacks of me taking a knife to his neck? Do you really want to do this to me? Have mercy, Lord. I know that I have not been close to this boy, not nearly as close as to my firstborn Ishmael, that boy I loved, and you forced me to send him away. Now you want me to kill the only son I have left. Isaac was always Sarah's favorite. Do you know what this will do to her? She will die too, 
if not physically, then she'll die inside. She and I already have problems between us because of Hagar and Ishmael. I know it was her idea, but it backfired. Sarah is already distant from me. Do you want to drive us further apart? But if you don't have pity on me or my wife, Lord, have pity on the boy. He has done nothing to deserve this. Why should his life be cut short just to show my dedication to you? Do you want his last memory to be of me, his father, tying him down like a sheep for slaughter and then taking a butcher knife to his neck? You can't want that, Lord. Are you angry with me? Why does your wrath burn hot against me, the one you brought out of Ur the Chaldees and out of Haran to this land? What have I done to so offend you, master of the universe? Plus you made a promise to me and Sarah that through this boy our descendants would become a great nation. What will become of your promise then? No, I'm going to hold you to your word, Lord. I've told many of the peoples of this land, whom I've met, of what you pledged to do through the line of Isaac. But if they hear of this, that you have commanded his death for whatever reason, do you know what that will look like? It will reflect badly on you, the Philistines and the Egyptians, whose kings I deceived that Sarah was my sister, will hear of it, and they will think it was with evil intent that you gave me this boy, only to kill him on the mountains and to consume him from the face of the earth. And then Abraham was silent, wondering if he had overstepped his bounds. He remembered that when he had pled for Sodom, he modulated his boldness, admitting that he was just dust and ashes. And he twice asked God not to be angry with him for interceding for that evil people. His boldness came from his concern for Lot and his family living in Sodom. What would become of them if God destroyed that evil city? He had asked God to save the city if there were found 50 innocent people there. God agreed. So he asked for 45, then 40, then 30, then 20. But he stopped at 10. He didn't have the courage to ask God to save the city for less than that. But Lot and his family were eight at the most. At the time, he didn't think he could push God quite that far. It seemed like just asking for too much. But now, what did he have to lose? So Abraham dug deep and found his courage and his voice again, and he cried out, I know I am far from innocent, Lord. Take me instead of my son. But whatever you do, do not kill this innocent boy. Will you really sweep away the innocent with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the innocent with the wicked, so the innocent fair as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? No, Lord, I plead with you. Change your mind. Turn from your fierce wrath. And do not bring this evil upon your chosen one. And the Lord changed his mind about the evil he was about to bring on Isaac. And God spoke from heaven, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You have understood that I am indeed a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing love to thousands. Indeed, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But what good would it do just to tell you that? What would those mere words mean to you? But by your bold intercession for your son, you have attained true knowledge of the God you serve. Indeed, you dared call on me to be faithful to my promise, 
Now that demonstrated your trust in me, and trust is well better than blind submission. So yes, Abraham, I have granted your request. Isaac is redeemed by your prayer. Go in peace and enjoy life with your wife Sarah and your son, whom you are beginning to love. And then God departed from his servant Abraham. It wasn't clear before Abraham's intercession that he had much love for Isaac, but now having stood up for him, defending him against God's seeming desire to slay him, a few sparks of love began to flow between father and son. And Abraham began to nurture that love and fan the sparks into a fire with the hope that his family might be healed. And Abraham taught his children and his household the way of the Lord. His descendants were known from then on for their surpassing mercy and generosity to all the families of the earth. Indeed, they were a blessing to all nations. Thank you so much for joining us for Why God Why.